This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Stay connected this winter with this unbeatable deal from BreezeLine. Get reliable, fiber-powered internet for just $19.99 per month with all-in pricing for two years. But that's not all. Your first month is on us. This deal gets better with a free modem and installation along with free Wi-Fi your way whole home coverage. Safeguard your network from cyber threats and keep all your devices connected and secured with this amazing offer. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires March 3rd, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. Your stock is worth $100 million. I had everything I ever wanted until it all came crashing down. No, 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 no. Can I come see you? Who? The FBI. Special Agent Gamble, FBI. You can't climb out of this one, man. You have no idea what it takes to build something. You don't have anything because you don't have God. I'll buy God. You are hereby ordered to serve a term of 25 years in jail. The church has $5 million parked in a money market. The perfect ingredient for the successful Ponzi scheme. For once in your life, don't take a shortcut. Welcome back to Fraudsters, everybody. This is part three of Barry Minko. Wow, what an amazingly fraudulent and terrible human being this guy turned out to be. Not only did he defraud churchgoers, but really, I have to say, I do feel bad for the mafia. They didn't ask for this. <laughs> well, we have an amazing interview for you guys today. It's with Jonathan Myers. He was the original screenwriter for Con Man, the Barry Minko story, which was funded by Barry from money that he had used by, you know, shorting companies and taking money away from parishioners at his church. No big preamble here. We'll get right into the interview. I think you're going to enjoy it. And what a nice little coda on this guy to really get an up close and personal view of Barry Minko. Jonathan, you've done all the research on Barry Minko. You've heard all the stories. You probably know a lot more than uh, journalists. You've you've aggregated a lot of information. You've met the guy. You've met the people around the guy. You know so much about him. In your experience, what was the most shocking thing that Barry Minkow did in his life? Oh, man, there's so much to mine through. Um, well, I, I would preface that. Thank you for that introduction into my knowledge of Barry Minkow. I would say that my knowledge is completely infected with emotion and 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 more on the secondary side of, of his crimes and capers. But even the research I did on the earlier side was, you know, based in the storytelling medium that that I you know, do for a living. So it's hard to remove emotion from, you know, my knowledge of Barry. Therefore, what I think he did that was the worst thing. I mean, in my industry, a lot of people swindle their way to raising money or they take advantage of investors and whatnot. So it really pains me to see someone do that. And he did that on such an egregious level to little old ladies and church folk and people that really bought into his conversion and his change of lifestyle. So that to me extended on a web that far outweighed things he did to say Lenar or to his carpet cleaning, you know, uh, investors. These were people whose lives were really destroyed. And I think that's the most egregious thing he's done. And you're talking about how he raised money by uh, skimming money from the church that he was the lead pastor at to fund his movie. Yeah, it was a combination of him, you know, lying about 
money he was taking from certain people or telling, you know, he tells someone, oh, this is going to children in Darfur. Or he would say, you know, this is for the movie, but you're going to receive it back tenfold, which anybody who invests in film is an idiot, in my opinion. Uh, and then he would straight up just steal from his uh, parishioners and steal from, you know, collection plates. And I'll tell you a fun anecdote. We were shooting a scene on the Universal Backlot where he was we were doing a flashback where he set sprinklers on on um, his own property so he could claim water damage and uh, also stole money out of the safe. And that same exact day we were filming that scene, going back and looking at, you know, the church and, and them saying, oh, we, we had a, a theft. It was the same day. And you're saying on the day that you filmed that, that that actually had he, he actually stole money from the church in that same way. Yes. And my memory might be a tad more dramatic than actual fact so it might be like the day before or the day after but i'm pretty sure it was the day of that his church was robbed was the day we were filming his office being robbed as the retelling of his 18 year old self you know that is phenomenal i just yeah. you know so this this film is you could tell that there was like there was something there that was supposed to happen mm -hmm. and then it didn't go the way it was supposed to. And I want to commend you and just give you a lot of kudos for your Reddit post. Just, you know, it was so thorough and really like straightforward. I mean, when I first oh, heard, you know, that, that Hazel had gotten the, the screenwriter of the movie, I was like, ah, oh, this guy's going to be just a, a another Barry Minko guy. He's just going <laughs> to be a big. And then I read your post and it was so clear to me the almost, uh, confusion you had during the process of what to make of all of this yeah. can you talk to me about because so much of our show here is not necessarily about the the fraudster themselves but about the victims right mm -hmm. and everyone in his orbit i would count as a victim right for to varying degrees even the mobsters that we'll get into a little bit later sure. i mean everyone was a victim to a certain degree and i want to just get from you what was that like to just not know who this guy was, to have spent so much time working on something that you wanted to tell as a real story? One of the things you mentioned in the Reddit post was that you negotiated to ensure that you would only uh, meet Barry after the first draft of the script. So what was that like? Sure, that wasn't as dramatic as it may have sounded. I just simply refused to respond to emails that he sent uh, while I was working on the first draft. I mean, it was pretty much that simple. Uh, and and the he said to me, I, I believe I mentioned this in the in the post, he said to me um, at a table read when he first met me, he was like, oh, I should punch you in the face because I had ignored him just so consistently. But I'm really glad that I did because, you know, he took over that. And I, I went from being the writer of a script I truly was proud of to being you know, Dr. Frankenstein and, you know, just piecemealing old scripts and other people's work and his retellings and brand new endings. And, and you know, we didn't make many days. And, and, and on a film set, that just means you didn't finish your schedule for the day. So you're you're behind. You got to shoot more that you didn't account for. So I'd have to rewrite stuff later just to make it all work and shorten the day here or, or you know, delete that scene and put that information into another one. It, it was just, you know, like I said, it was a Frankenstein script um, that I'm not proud of. And I thought about taking my name off of it, but I wanted to be associated with the story so that I didn't have to fight through the stigma of saying, oh, trust me, I was there. You know, um, it's pretty <laughs> obvious that I was. And and I, I jump at the chance to tell any aspect of it because it's such a fascinating story. Yeah, I uh, watched the film last night, and I'm really I'm relieved. No, yeah, I'm re no, I'm so relieved that you feel that way because I understand how much work goes into a film. You know, from the raising, the writing, the shoots, the reshoots, all of these things. So I, you know, I'm very careful to not shit on you know hard work. But mm. I just want to say I'm very relieved, and I'm glad that you mentioned Frankenstein monster because that's what came across. <laughs> Immediately, mm. that they it was it, it, it's like it's five different movies trying to be one movie. It's like, like maybe you can give some insight into this. It's like cool eighties teen movie. Yeah, that's like, uh, and then it kind of turns into like the Green Mile during certain like parts of it. At some point, it's like why is why is Ving Rhames a wise black man that is also a ghost? Yeah, and, interestingly know. enough, that was such a huge character in in the script uh, for Barry to say this is the guy that changed my life and, and this and that when I asked him 
I think it's, I can't remember if it's in the movie or not, but you know, he said the day that he got out or the week he got out, he was gunned down and died. And so I was like, well, that's suspicious. So I, I looked into it and I can't find, not to say that this guy didn't exist, but this guy didn't exist. Uh, it was a total <laughs> fabrication and total lie. So, um, I mean, there's a slight chance there was a, a guy in jail who was impressed because Barry stopped the shower fight and, you know, decided he was going to take him under his wing and light matches in his prison cell to be dramatic. But I don't. No, I, I was watching that and I looked up my first reaction was like, there is no way that this white collar criminal is walking up to like two MS-13 guys beating <laughs> yeah. a man in the shower. And he's like, gentlemen, please refrain. Right. right and right. they're like. Yeah, and somebody's yeah. like, I respect you, Barry. Like, <laughs> was, no, none oh, of that so happened. Bad. Oh, man. I mean, you just had to resign yourself to be like, okay, what do you, what do you want it to say? What do you want it to do? You know, you're going you're gonna to do it anyway. I will when you let him go. Oh, too bad. Hey, can't you hear? Finish your shower. So take a walk, man. Take a walk. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. I know I'm not seeing what I think I'm seeing. On set, these are decisions that made. We all know, you know, we know how the creative process works. It's a collaborative process usually, and you have to bring people along, and you have to do the push and the pull. But the director is supposed to be the king of the set. Sure. And yeah. then after after that, it's kind of like the writer and the EPs or whatever, what have you. But what was that like to to have the director to almost be uh, not able to control the set? How did that happen? Yeah, I mean, you know, you you broke that down exactly how it is and and the main thought i had on that movie was over and over again i'm just so glad i'm not directing this thing <laughs> i thought of that so many times i mean I, i've directed you know three features uh, i'm in the dga like you know i, I could have done it in fact <laughs> one of the uh the days that that barry came back and they were filming something he didn't want to have filmed with justin baldoni he wanted to be in the scene so he fired the director for like a night and the producer asked me if I wanted to direct it and I just laughed and walked out of the trailer because there's no way I was going to do that. They, you know, Barry was just such the just the presence of him on set and just his taste was so bad on top of these rose colored glasses he was reseeing his life through that it was impossible to make a good movie out of that. I mean, I think you could be super smart and have filmed a parody knowing how the cards were going to fall. And then say, I'm going to come back and I'm going to, you know, make an almost mockumentary out of this thing. But I was the only person begging to get a camera and interview Barry on set because I just knew, I just knew he was going to have this explosion, you know, and, and it would all come crashing down. But, you know, at the time, I didn't know why they wouldn't do it. And later it, it became clear it was because the producer of that film was also involved in his own Ponzi scheme. Uh, so it was just a fucked up situation. What's also odd is that it's like a messed up situation that like gets commented on. Like there's a scene where, you know, where it randomly goes to like the interviews for reasons that are unexplained. Mm. And Michael Francis, the former gangster, is like... Barry should not play himself in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> Just in the middle of the movie. I know when he wanted to to make this movie, um, there again, I said, Barry, be very, very careful. I certainly advised him not to play himself. I said, you're making a mistake. Yeah, they, they shot that uh, much later. You know, the movie took like nine years to come out or something like that. And they did that as like a way to patch it up, you know, make it right. <laughs> so. So, yeah, it, it feels very shoehorned in there because it is. It's just you're taking a movie that was basically written by the liar that it's about and then trying to prove he's a liar through sit down interviews in the middle of it is just weird. So when you when you were doing the movie, he hadn't been caught defrauding the, the church yet. Is that right? Right. In fact, um, I don't know if that would have come out had the spotlight been put on him because of his Lennar situation. And, you know, I'm sure you guys know about him and his fraud discovery Institute 
which is something he created to you know fight for the little guy. Uh, he just picked on the wrong person and shorted the stocks of that company as he came out and said they were fraudulent um, or some variation of that, which led him to jail. Lenar's stock took half a billion dollar hit and they laid that at his feet. So on top of the, uh, I don't know what restitution he had left for his initial crimes, but you know he's in restitution of half a billion dollars. All that was crashing down and all that spotlight was on him. And in that moment, you know, people started to take second looks at what he was doing. And that I think is, is the main reason, you know, he got popped for the church. And that's after the, after the movie was finished um, filming or finished uh, edit in post-production or an edit or what, at what point were you kind of reading the news and seeing stuff and, and you know, uh, as opposed to just like living with Barry in a way and seeing his life up close. Yeah. Once we wrapped filming, you know, I, I believe in the last week or two of filming, these articles started coming out in LA Weekly and they were breaking down these, you know, accusations. Not a lot of fact, but I knew they were all true. I mean, you could just tell. It was filling in a lot of blanks and, and it was just, oh yeah, yeah, of course, that makes sense. But um, that was like right, right as filming was wrapping. And so the film was sitting in an edit bay at Universal and they were just trying to, but you know, when you're like working on something and you know that the history of what's happening at the moment will definitely affect what you're trying to mold. And that's where, where they were sitting, the, the, you know, few producers who were still involved and the director and the editor. And it was just like, well, what do we do here? So it sat in a tentative state for a decade until you know i think it released a year before he got out man just thinking about all the hard drives that movie had to get transferred to over the yeah. years no kidding. <laughs> just like, this, what a nightmare god i got this i got this barry minkow movie i gotta back it up again oh my god so yeah annoying. i feel bad for the director in the sense that you know you want to see something come out and you know your next film is is largely predicated on your previous one and um so, you know, he did shoehorn these interviews into a bad movie, but I think he just wanted to have, you know, wash his hands of it. Yeah, you got to get something out there. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Ready for an amazing deal? BreezeLine's fiber-powered internet starting at $19.99 per month offers the reliability you deserve and security you can trust. Whether you're streaming, gaming, or working from home, we've got all your needs covered with speeds up to 1 gig and our two-year price lock guarantee. This deal gets even better with two free months of internet, free equipment, and free Wi-Fi your way to protect against cyber threats. Act now. Terms and conditions apply. Offer expires July 8, 2024. Learn more at BreezeLine.com. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Let's talk about the production uh, and the production company. Brett Saxon is the guy that runs uh, ran IMG, um, and that's the production company that produced the film. Yeah. Why? Why do you think he even got into the movie in the first place with Barry, knowing his history? Why did he even give him a chance? Well, it still seems 
pretty innocent, the origins of their meet and collaboration. I don't think they initially pinned each other as people they could con in their very first meeting. I could be wrong about this, but from what I remember, uh, Brett either went to a church that Barry spoke at or they went to the same church event or whatever it was, and they, you know, mingled and, and became somewhat acquaintances. And then Barry called him up and said, I want to make a live story about you know, my, you know, movie about my life story. And Brett said, well, people tell me this all the time. 99% of the time, they don't have a worthy story, but you do. And he did, you know, he had a great story. And the minute that Brett found out and he'd already put things moving, you know, he'd already started to put funds together. He already started to, you know, build a crew around this. Um, And then Barry had some, he wanted the director who directed the short film that he made through his church to direct the feature, which Brett didn't like. And then he said, I want to play myself. And Brett said, well, the only way I'll be involved is if you put up all the money. And that's the only way you'll be able to star as yourself. And, you know, Barry did very creatively put together all the money to star as himself in a movie about himself. And so did 100% uh, from your experience or knowledge at this point, 100% of the funding came from the church, basically, him skimming? Or was it also from him shorting the stocks as well? And, and then do you know of any other sources? Yeah, I, I don't know how to to prove any of that, the shorting of his stocks going in. I mean, you know, there's a scene... Uh, in the movie and I don't know if it was used in court or not but you know they were between shooting and James Caan was sitting opposite Barry Minko and you know I was wearing headphones in Video Village which is where the monitors are to see what's being filmed and another friend of mine a producer on the film was sitting next to me and, and we saw Barry lean over and say do you know how I raised the money for this movie and then James is so apathetic <laughs> he just was like huh and he goes, I clipped <laughs> companies, you know, which is slang for for shorting stock. So to his admission uh, from one quote unquote gangster to another, you know, he says that he uh, clipped companies to, you know. Did you confront him about that? No, no. He didn't think that uh, anyone heard him, you know, but he's wearing a microphone. It's common on set. You know, you'll you'll be wearing headphones and you'll hear somebody going to the bathroom and you're like, oh, you've you forgot to turn your mic off, you know, but this guy committed or admitted to committing crimes instead. So that was fun, but there wasn't really anything to confront, you know I mean? Like, what are you going to tell the boss that, you know, he admitted to committing a crime to make the movie that he was funding? You know, it's just, and that's actually a really good point there too, because when I've been on sets where an independent wealthy person funds the whole thing Mm -hmm. and it's different than a studio pick, right? That one human being is the boss of the entire set. And again, I go back to that whole set was a victim of Barry Minko. You know what I mean? Yeah. He they he brought them all in. What was the vibe of the actors on set? They're getting paid. They're doing it. James Conn, I'm sure, was just could not be more bemused by this entire thing. But what was the vibe of the actors and the crew on set as they had to go through it? And I and I also want to kind of get into the tensions through the production with the unions as well. Sure. Uh, I feel like the actors, uh, most of them had a very different experience than the crew. Uh, you know, the actors were getting paid on time. They had their reps fighting for them if there were any problems. You know, we were in a very controlled environment, mostly at Universal Studios. Outside of having to work with a very awkward person opposite, you know, having to act with Barry, uh, everyone else was very professional and everyone else was was very talented. So, you know, that that wasn't an issue. And I, I know that I, I think Ving Rhames was going through some personal issues at the time. And Barry was often aside with him and, you know, talking him through it as a pastor would. And, and so I think Ving was getting something out of that even more so than than, you know, getting paid to act in a movie. And, and so there was like, you know, at the beginning you signed on because there was something weirdly endearing about this whole situation. And, and then that nagging weirdness just kind of took over. But by that time, I think the actors were all in. It was the crew that really had the worst 
of it just because of the tension on set between, you know, Barry and the producers and the director and, and the fact that we just weren't getting our days done, which is always hard on everybody. And the fact that, you know, you could look through the monitor. Actors aren't looking at what's being recorded on screen. They're, they're kind of in the moment there. So we just knew it wasn't looking good. It wasn't really going to mesh well. And, and, and then on top of that, you know, the most obvious was, was just paychecks bouncing and, and, being paid in different ways and PayPal and you need to get a check from a trucking company and, and, you know, your check would bounce. And I mean, it was just all this <laughs> madness. So, you know, none of the crew was represented by CAA. So it wasn't like they had a big machine behind them. We just had to put up with that. And he would try to make up for it and he'd walk around with this thick stack of hundreds and he would just peel a couple off and go, you know, I really appreciate you. So I was just a total, you know, con job the whole way out but you know he was also just hanging on by his fingernails and as somebody who works on a set you you put up with a lot you know whether it's it's just shitty weather and everybody's great or you know people are rubbing each other the wrong way or you know you have that wonderful summer camp experience but you know still really really long hours and um you know it, there's always so much bullshit to put up with on a set so you just have those projects where you're like, oh, this is one of those. It's it's worse than the others, but we can get through it, you know? Just hearing you tell me that, like, it almost makes Barry, like, a genius in a way, right? Because he actually made you all live in his film as you made the film. Yeah. <laughs> and also, like, in there, like, I think there's another great movie there. It's actually the, the story of how Ving Rhames was cast to console Barry, but it was really Barry that was there for <laughs> Ving the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's the the plot twist. It's funny, uh, you know. I, the the really interesting thing about Barry is is, and a, I think a lot of con artists get labeled as geniuses or just very very smart. But a lot of times, you're just preying on people's you know basic instincts or or their their want to be connected to someone else. I mean, he always always said. I'm a liar and a sinner saved by grace, right? And everybody would focus on that second part. I'm saved by grace. So they, oh, he's changed, you know? No, he's not talking about himself in the past tense. He's talking about himself in the present. I'm a liar and a sinner. You know, like he tells you, I'm a liar right to your face. And you just smile at him, you know? And and th that's the power that he has is being so bold. He would record at his church, these lectures about how you shouldn't entrust preachers with your money. It's a recipe for disaster while he was in charge of all the money at his church. So I, I think that being so brazen, and I said this to Hazel last week, he was wearing his con on his sleeve that you just, mm. you know, took it as, you know, you just believed him. You just went along with it. So I think everybody did in the film too. The whole movie was was predicated on this redemption story. This is all about him redeeming himself. This is before, again, he gets caught with all the other things that he ended up doing. Mm -hmm. The shorting and the, and the skimming and, and such. The fraudulent shorting. Shorting's not illegal in itself. But were people on set just like, hey, well, the guy's cleaned up his act. Did, did people really buy into it? Was, was I mean, obviously Ving Rhames did. But did James Caan, did all the other actors, did the crew, were there people just, I mean, I've been on a lot of sets. A lot of these crew guys, they've been around for years. They've seen every fraudster come through yeah. uh, Hollywood. Did they buy it? Did people really get into the redemption story that they were trying to tell? No. That he was? No. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think anybody, I mean, even like, you know, if you have certain actors that step in for like a day part. Uh, yeah. And and a, a, my first film starred Chris Pine. I wrote and directed and his dad was in it. And so I asked his dad as a favor to come back and play like the judge. And you'd, you'd uh, remember his dad from Chips. He was the sergeant. But he was oh, there for a yeah. day. He was there for one day. And he's sitting behind his desk in his, in his judge robes. And there was like a break. And he had seen Barry just walking around. Barry wasn't even acting that day. And he said, so what's the deal with this guy? You know, like he even <laughs> knew in one day that this guy was was not who he was portraying himself to be. Um, I can't say how he was able to snow over his church so Perfectly, I think that's just much longer a con. The act of contrition for so long builds up. Um, however, they saw him in their eyes. But upon immediately 
Seeing him, you distrust him. Then he disarms you by saying, you know, don't trust me. And then within a few minutes later, you're like, yeah, okay, I won't. You're just not trustworthy. And I feel everybody had that. And the ones that had to emotionally connect to their characters, they bought into it a little bit more because that's part of their job to empathize. But the grip walking around with duct tape hanging off his belt knew immediately this guy's a piece of shit. Yeah, I heard that reportedly Mark Hamill felt a disturbance in the force when he met. Oh, Mary. that's great. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I have two memories of Mark Hamill. That's right. <laughs> I have two memories of Mark Hamill on set. One was him changing his pants in the middle of the street. And I was like, I'm watching Luke Skywalker in his underwear, which was amazing. And then I just wanted to talk about, you know, his Joker stuff. And he just went really, really excitedly into, uh, you know, anecdotes about playing Joker. And so that was fun. But he wasn't on set very long, you know. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Son, you know I am so proud of you. But I don't want you to get in any trouble. And I just feel like you're in over your head. Dad, don't tell me how to run my business. I, no, no, no. Your whole life you've played it safe, okay? I'm taking my shot here. Hey, why don't you come work for Z Best? Huh? You, you can build up you can build up my commercial accounts. I'll match your salary at Wendy City with a better commission. I don't think that's the best Come idea. on, Dad. I you've just, always been at jobs that didn't require any talent. Come work for me. Show me what you can do. Huh? Dad, start work Monday. See you later, Mr. Minko. Yeah, see you, boys. Well, one of the things I actually want to bring up from the movie uh, that Mark Hamill plays uh, his father, but in real life, and I think this is teased a little bit in the in the movie, uh, but in real life, when Barry was running Z Best and he hired his father to work on it. Is it true that he, he asked his father to address his own son as Mr. Minko? 
Yeah, even worse, he made a spectacle of that in front of a bunch of people. He was atrocious to his uh, father. And we kind of portray his mother, Talia Shire, as a little bit of, you know, the gateway to him. And that was made up by me. I felt like he needed, we needed to empathize with the fact that this bright, shiny kid, you know, kind of found a way to have a little con that turned into a bigger one. And But uh, his mother was wonderful to all accounts. And so was his father. They just weren't very successful. And he strongly disliked them for that. I don't know if he strongly disliked them, but he just looked down on them for not being successful, especially with what he achieved at 16 years old. What's that supposed to mean? Please listen. I wanted wanted so much more than what your father could provide. I didn't realize what a good man he was. Oh, good man. Good man pays the water bill. A good man keeps the lights on in the house. A good man will take care of and, and provide for his family, no matter what, no matter what the cost. I, Mom, Mama, I, I'm a good it's man. It's very hard to be a good man, Barry. Are you really, do, are you really doing this to me on my birthday? Mom? Huh? What are you doing? You're gonna, you want to turn on all this now? I am the most successful thing to ever come from this family. All right? This is everything that you've wanted. This is everything that dad's wanted. This is everything that I've wanted for my entire life. I mean, come on. I control a $300 million company. When I was downstairs blowing out my birthday candles, I couldn't even think of anything to wish for because I already have everything. You don't have anything. You don't have anything because you don't have morality. I don't have... (laughs) You don't have God. You ever grow up with those kids that uh, address their parents by their first name? <laughs> They're like, hey, you know, Ted. No, I've never. Hey, d- Ted. But I hey, get so pissed hey, off Mark. when I see a movie or read a script oh. where someone's like, you know, hey, George. And it's like, shut up. Just call them dad. You know, like, no one does that. That's just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it always, I mean, I'm a, a son of immigrants here. My parents are from Iran. And like, I'd have friends like that would come over. And they would like, out of nowhere, they'd say my mother's first name. And it was like you could hear a pin drop in the whole zip code. Yeah. It'd be like, no, no, you she is Mrs. Gaznavi. You just, just please don't do that. Yeah. Right. We don't need that. The world does not need a situation of that caliber. But him having his father address him in this way seems like a some sort of mental kind of derangement or an alternate reality that he had put himself in. Sure. That is different than a lot of other uh, fraudsters that we've met, I think that, that we've that we've covered here, only because a lot of them have tried to at least bring their families along, or at least bring the people that are close to them and hold yeah. them in and make them believe the same reality he is. But he was just in his own, and he was like, "You all have to worship me." In a point, did he have a god complex? Uh, you know, that's that's really an interesting thought. I I I believe you know on top of the fact that he would. Have his dad call him Mr. Minko, he would routinely fire him. And so I Ugh. believe it was just this super power move, you know, that was a big thing for Barry, bringing gold bars to school to show off, you know, saying he was going to bid for the Seattle Mariners, <laughs> you know, just, just this extravagance of, you know, I love that side of the story, that greed is good era, just the perfect embodiment. I, you know, he represents like the worst parts of human nature, but he does it so boldly in that Gordon Gecko way, but also it's like, there's no talent there as to what he's actually doing. It's just the talent is in the fraud. So if you can't be a prophet in your own home, I think Barry was saying, fuck you. Yes, I can. And that's where that comes from. Yeah. He's like, uh, he's like Ric Flair, but without the wrestling. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. So, so back to, to the actual production and stuff. The mob got involved, and, and I mm-hmm. guess he had crossed the mob early on in some of his frauds. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what that experience was like, and have you ever seen the mob up close and personal like you did on this on this set? No, I've I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. I spent some years in Memphis. Um, so mm, neither the Memphis of those, mob is vicious. They are, yeah. I mean, they run barbecue all up and down. They send Jerry Lawler to your house. Another wrestling reference. Yeah, you did. I was waiting for that one. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, but the Los Angeles has never really been known as being a mob city. But there, there's, of course, there's always <laughs> They got Hollywood influence. for that. Yeah, <laughs> right. Uh, and so I, I think, you know, the leftovers of that Mickey Cohen 50s gangster era, you know, were around uh, connections to Chicago. And so from what I understand to kind of lay the base for this side of the story is that there was a restaurant in Malibu uh, called Splash. And it was a front for the mafia, and a lot, and it was very popular, and and it was where a lot of celebrities and wealthy people, and you know, would hobnob in Malibu, and it was managed by this guy, um, who I'll just refer to. What did I call him? I I, I can't remember. You uh, called him like Fruity Ferruzzi yes, or something. Yeah, hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Frankie. But we'll, yeah, we'll call him Frank. Frankie. And so he managed this place, and. And that was an aspect of of Barry's first initial, you know, crime in the 80s is actually he was Daryl Gates, who was then the police commissioner at the time, went after him originally because he thought that he was a giant laundering machine for the mafia, which they dropped those charges. But that was the initial way they, they attacked Barry. And it was true to a sense. He was backed by the mafia and he was helping them out. And he rolled on all of them when he got busted. He told on everybody. And he makes a big deal in the movie to be like, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't say anything. And so they kept me in jail longer. That's how he justified playing himself in jail at age 40 was that they held him in prison because he wouldn't give names. But he did. Completely the opposite. Yeah, he he, he told on everybody. So... You know, what what happened because of those testimonies, I don't know. I don't know if those guys would have went to jail because they were already being, you know, watched or, or uh, you know, would have been arrested for other things or if he directly sent people to prison. I don't know that answer. But what I do know is that the shady producer had this idea of our two days where we were going to shoot on location, where we didn't have the protection of Universal Studios, uh, to prevent... It was a non-union show. So what they would do is uh, the crew would fax the call sheet to the union office and say, hey, here's where we're going to be on this day. This is the time we're going to be there at this location. So then the union could show up, tell everybody to stop working, and then negotiate a union deal for the crew before production would resume. That was, you know, it happens a lot. It's called flipping. And so they had a guy inside the office who's kind of connected to Chicago who would take those faxes when they came in with the call sheets and the addresses, crumple them up and throw them in the waste paper basket. And then they had another guy who was on set. And this is Frankie. And his job was to negotiate a really sweet deal when the union showed up, you know, in the hopes of when they sat down, they'd be like, oh, OK, you're represented by a friend of ours. So, um, you know, you're a friend of ours kind of a thing. Friend of ours is different than a friend of mine. Exactly. Friend of mine, friend of ours. Yeah. Are we, are we doing The Godfather or are we doing Analyze This? I, I think can't that's remember. good. Is that Goodfellas? Or <laughs> that is it Goodfellas? <laughs> that was actually Donnie Brasco. Oh, Donnie, Donnie Brasco. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Thank you, you Justin. That's yeah. good. So, um, you know, it ended up being in itself a little bit of a con because they were going to crash anyway. They got the, the crew to flip anyway. But when they called Frankie... He's like, yeah, I'll help out with this movie. What's it about? And they go, oh, it's about this kid, Barry Minko. They told him the story. And he goes, oh, yeah, I know Barry. Tell him Frankie from Splash says hello. What a night. And what I, a nightmare crazy. that must have been. I, well, so we were, I was in the room. I could overhear everything. And I could see them. And the producer friend of mine turned and looked at me. And we made eyes like, whoa. And so I conveniently positioned myself at the water cooler slash Starburst counter where Barry was in the next room. And when they told him that I was looking in the room and he just, his face went white as a ghost, he covers his face with his hands. And he just went, Oh no. And it was so, <laughs> so odd that like the guy he rolled on and I'm sure like Frankie's reading the script, laughing his ass off with a bag of Doritos. Like this is just so much bullshit. And so Barry hires two armed guards on Frankie's first day and they won't leave his side. And then they have this like sit down where the whole production shuts down and we're all like have to stay away from him. And he's, you know, they're yards away talking. This lasted for about 30 minutes. And then they kind of like shake hands and, and 
tensions are eased and and everything was was fine after that. But you know, it's just wild, crazy. Now I heard that Frankie actually cornered Barry, and then Ving Rhames uh, actually intervened and said, "I know you're not trying to corner Barry." Oh, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't hear that. That's that's cool. I, you know, I I do know that everybody knew James Caan through, you know, yeah. The Godfather and his connection there. And, you know, there was a story floating around that that Barry and and James Caan in the 80s had invested in a boxer to take a dive and neither of them remembered it or chose not to admit it. But that was fun. And there's pictures of young Barry with James Caan. In the 80s. Oh, my. It's really oh neat. Yeah, you can find them on, on the Google. Okay, so you've gone through this whole process. Barry's in jail still. Do you know when he gets out? You, you mean the second time? Yeah. Uh, he got out last year. I think it was 2019. Yeah. That's right. He got out in August. I believe it's August 2019, just in time for the pandemic. Fantastic. Yeah. Good for you, yeah. Barry. Right. What is his life going to be like now, do you think? Do you think he's ever, do you think he's going to go back to just doing the same scams that he did before? Do you think he's even capable of rehabilitation? I don't think he's capable of rehabilitation. I think not only is he the scorpion, he'll tell you before he jumps on your back for a ride. You know, I just, I think there's, there's just two many things stacked against him for him to get away with what he used to do. But, you know, there's always people to con and there's different and creative ways in which to do it. And I think he will find small ways to do that. Not on a grand level. I mean, even if Barry, you know, signs a movie deal and people tell his story like in a Jordan Belfort way, you know, he just owes too much money uh, to, to ever come out with anything other than some glory, you know. But I think that the one con that seems to be on uh, or ongoing and and seems to, you know, will be there to the end is with his wife. Because she stayed by him after he was busted, after all these terrible things, uh, his time in jail, you know, his release, just this kind of cyclical thing that Barry has of just screwing up and then prostrating himself and saying I've changed and then it just happens over and over again and he somehow managed to convince her to live in prison and and that's to me that's something that is his most successful con because it directly affects his life on a daily basis and I just believe he's got this hold on this poor woman so that I think will stay successful I wouldn't see any reason why she would divorce him after everything now but as far as on a grand scale, no, I, I don't think he'll get anything other than a 15 second flash of more fame. If you were to write his ending now, what would it be, you think? Hmm. I think if, if Barry did get that 15 seconds and embraced it as in, in his mind, it was like, hey, if I tell my story you know, people are going to empathize with me. They'll understand me. I'll get a second shot. Double, you know, even if he's conning himself right now, I, I'm good now. I won't do it again. I'd write the ending that he participates in his third downfall in that he tells his story thinking that this is going to be great and set him up to kind of reclaim his life, but that everyone sees through that bullshit and that his face is just on such a wider uh, it's just seen by so many more people that it is impossible for him to con people. That's, that's I think, the fitting end to Barry. Yeah. Unable to even do the cons that he wanted. Mm -hmm. Even yeah. the little ones, because he will try. Yeah. Justin? If he tells his own story, it's going to be him sitting in an orange grove and then just falling over like the godfather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Chasing his grandson. Yeah. Jonathan, uh, thank you so much for your time. You, what are you working on right now? Uh, a couple of things I can't really talk about. Um, and Fantastic. Happy to plug them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, the only thing that I, I would want to plug is I've got a, a radio serial that I'm, I'm just you know, experimenting with that medium. And, and I'd like people to listen to it just to see if the response is positive. It's, it's, um, 
called Midnight Tales from the Bluff City. And the first and only episode out right now is called The Seppuku Songbird. So check that out uh, if you like radio serials. And that is uh, anywhere you can listen to podcasts. It's all all over the place. I'm all thumbs when it comes to that kind of thing. I, I really am. <laughs> I, I, I have it on SoundCloud, but it, you know, it was on iTunes, and then they're like, you owe six bucks. And I'm like, what? No. And now it's gone. So, oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's on SoundCloud. I'm really proud of it. It's got original music, and it's about a serial killer who, a fictional serial killer in the 1980s who kidnaps singer-songwriters, hoping to prove that he's just as talented. Ooh. Spicy. Yeah. Sounds bloody. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time, man. This was so oh, thank you, much guys. fun. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, man. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you guys for chatting with me. Thank you, Hazel. You guys have a great afternoon. What an amazing interview. What a nice guy. Make sure to listen to his podcast. It's serialized. It's super fun. Jonathan Myers, he's a director. He's a writer. I mean, he did it all. And he was up close and personal with Barry Minko. We really appreciate the time, Jonathan. Thank you. As we close out the year here, we want to say from Fraudsters, it's been an amazing 2020. We've only started in August here, and the fans and the listeners and even the haters, we love all of you guys. Thank you so much for everything. Uh, happy New Year. And in 2021, we're going to start with a mini series on race hustlers, people that have used race and their affinity for identity to defraud them. So big thanks to Emily Fusco on the research, Hazel Bryan as our producer, Marie Anderson on the edit, and this has been a production of Last Podcast Network and Zero Cool Media. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Fluffy bread, fresh tortillas, classic burger buns, and so many carbs. Carb fear is real, but Hero Bread makes healthier versions of the carb-heavy favorites we love the most. We're talking fewer calories, 0 to 2 grams net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and seriously great taste. Plus more of the dietary fiber and protein you want. No compromise. Don't skip out on your favorites. Just use Hero Bread. Get 10% off your order at Hero.co with code Hero10 at checkout. That's Hero10 at H-E-R-O dot C-O.